0: Matthew chapter 15 closes with Jesus spending what we could really call in some ways the very first missionary journey. It's kind of a weird way of looking at it, but Jesus specifically leaves in the 15th chapter of Matthew the promised land and he goes out into Gentile territory, an area in Phoenicia known as Tyre and Sidon. And he ministers there to a woman who had a daughter that was severely possessed. After ministering to her, he then comes back to the Galilee, but he doesn't return to the Jewish enclaves. He comes back to an area known as the Decapolis. It was a compilation of 10 different Roman cities. Again, very much Gentile territory. Jesus sowing the seeds and teaching his disciples some important lessons that would make sense many years later. Chapter 16, verse 1, we transition. Then, the Pharisees and Sadducees came. And testing him, asked that he would show them a sign from heaven. We have an interesting group of bedfellows here. The Pharisees and the Sadducees. For purposes that will make sense as we continue through the chapter, the Pharisees and the Sadducees comprised of really the two main religious but political parties in Israel. In a lot of ways, they're very similar to kind of our Democrats and Republicans. They were kind of the left and the right. You had the Pharisees that were the traditionalists. They believed in God's word. They were the literalists. They were filled with national pride, God and country. I mean, they were the Bible thumpers. They held fast to the word. They obeyed the word, even down to the nitty gritty. Very much uh, nationalistic in their outlook. Sadducees, on the other end, were were more about keeping peace with Rome. They were very liberal in their theology. They excused away anything uh, regarding the miraculous from their interpretations of Scripture. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in the resurrection. They were very liberal, worldly, secular in their thought process. The Sadducees were also known to be very Hellenistic, even culturally kind of shunning some of the the, the real Jewish idea and and presentation culture uh, in exchange for Greek thought, Greek language, Greek dress and attire. These two groups of people hated each other, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They were constantly jockeying for power, for authority, for prestige, for a foothold. And yet we find that these two political parties, they, they come from Jerusalem, They send a delegation. They're like, well, we we have disagreements, but we have one agreement, and that this Jesus guy is a bit of a problem. And so they come, and Matthew tells us right from the beginning that they don't come with pure intentions. Now, if they had come to just inquire of Jesus to evaluate what he was teaching, to make sure he wasn't a heretic, they had every authority and and, and right to do so. But they didn't come with that. They wanted to test Jesus. They wanted to, to catch him in some type of a trap. They wanted to discredit him. And they come and they ask that Jesus would show them a sign from heaven. Now, again, if you've been with us the last few weeks, if you've been traveling through the Gospel of Matthew, we've seen some pretty amazing things. And it's kind of like, well, where have you guys been? Feeding the 5,000, then feeding the 4,000, and walking on water. and and having these nightly marathons where they bring the sick and the lame and the blind, and he heals all of them, whether you're a Jew, whether you're a Gentile, it didn't matter. You want a sign from heaven? Have you not been paying attention? Have you not been looking? And the reality is that they hadn't. So Jesus answered and said to them, when it is evening, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be foul weather today, for the sky is red and threatening. Hypocrites, you know how to discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the times. Jesus will very quickly transition into kind of like dropping the hammer on them. But he points out an obvious, an obvious point. He's saying, you guys, you're the religious leaders of Israel. You're in a very important position, and you can determine the weather. You know, there's the old saying, hopefully I get this right, red sky at night, sailors delight. Red sky in the morning, sailor take warning. Not super applicable to us in the northern hemisphere where, where we live, but you're on the Sea of Galilee and the, the mountains surrounding. Very applicable. And just the way that they were to understand and observe uh, the, the patterns of the weather and whether or not you needed to go out in a boat or not. Because again, storms on the Sea of Galilee, as, we, as we've discussed, come very quickly. And so if, if there was a red sky at night, it seemed to be an indication that the storms had, were gone, that they had passed through, that they were in the, in the distance moving away, so the, the next day would be beautiful, and if in the morning there was a red sky at sunrise, well, then it could be the indication that storms were approaching, and we need to be careful and maybe not go out on the boat. Funny side story. This summer, uh, we were at the beach, me and the kids, Jessica, and we were took a walk right at dusk. I mean, it was it was just a beautiful night, beautiful it wasn't too hot. The, the breeze was nice. We just took a family walk down the beach, and we come back. And, I mean, it was the, the quintessentially perfect sunset. I mean, it was, it was gorgeous. And so w- the family and I, we, we just sat there, and we just we just soaked it in. We watched until you know, t- the sun just, you know, completely disappeared on the horizon. And Theodore turns to me because, I mean, you had the vibrant reds and purples and whatnot. He goes, Dad, it's real serious. It's going to be a good day tomorrow. I said, how do you know that, son? He goes, well, the Bible tells me that if the sky is red at night, then the next day will be fine. And I said, I don't think the Bible says that, son. The pastor arguing with his seven-year-old. He goes, no, dad, it's in the Bible. You should read it. And so I kind of set it aside. I'm like, I'm not going to argue with you. And then I opened up this passage and was reading through it. I was like, son of a gun, that little Theodore. Scholar, who should be preaching? He calls them hypocrites. Again, a second time that Jesus refers to these men as hypocrites. In the Greek, it's, it's, it's a theater term. It's to wear a mask, to masquerade. It's to present a persona of what you really aren't a public persona of what's not inside, a false identity contrary to what you truly are. They were playing a part. They were posers. He calls them hypocrites. You know how to discern the face of the sky, but you can't discern the signs of the times. And, I mean, this had been obvious. For 400 years from the close of Malachi to John the Baptist, you had 400 years of silence. The closing of the the prophetic age, silence, you had a lot of turmoil in the land, you had Persian Empire, you know, giving way to the Grecian Empire, which gives way to the Roman Empire, and this little chunk of turf, the promised land, was getting jockeyed back and forth between these global empires. 400 years where they're trying to be obedient to God. They've rebuilt the temple to the best of their ability. They're serious about obeying the Sabbath. They're serious about keeping the temple holy. They're serious about keeping themselves separate from the Gentile communities. They're serious. But God is silent. He spoke to them for many years, and they were disobedient. And then he judged them, and he's silent. Is God here? Is God listening? Is God aware? Is, where is God? Silence. And then out of nowhere, John the Baptist comes onto the scene like a lightning bolt. And it's not in private. It's public. People know about John the Baptist. People are flocking out to hear John the Baptist preach, to be baptized by John the Baptist. And John the Baptist ends up testifying of Jesus. And Jesus is ministering first in Jerusalem, Judea area, and then he goes up to the Galilee. This is public. His fame is spread. It's well-known. Example, Tyre and Sidon. Gentile areas. This woman hears that Jesus is there and she beelines it to him, right? None of this was kept in secret. None of this was private. It was all public. And Jesus is like, you come to me as the religious leaders and you're like, hey, we're really curious if God's doing something. It's like, you can can perceive the weather, but how can you miss what is so obvious right in front of your face? Please, I'll say this as a side note. Don't miss what is obvious. Don't miss what is obvious. Don't miss Jesus who died for you because he loved you and he was nailed to a tree. And three days later, he rose from the dead to give you life and victory. Don't miss the obvious. Well, Zach, I have all these questions. Okay, that's great. You can work through them. You can find it. But just don't miss the obvious. Start with Jesus. See that God's trying to work in your life. You know, sometimes, sometimes, isn't it, isn't it true? You know, you, you, you'll come. You'll sit down. I'll sit down with you. Grab lunch. and You're like, I just don't feel like God's really working in my life right now. And it's like, wait, wait, what? And we start talking about your life and all the things that are happening in your life. And it's like, well, Is God not working or are you not looking? And sometimes, again, I just make the, don't miss the obvious. God, are you really at work? Why don't you open your eyes and look around? Do you see his fingerprints? Don't miss the obvious. Jesus continues, verse 4, he says, A wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. And no sign shall be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And he left them and he departed. Now, this is an interesting thing. And again, Jesus has made this statement before. They want a sign from heaven that you are who you are, that God's at work. And does Jesus say, I won't give you a sign? No, he he actually says, I'll give you one. You want a sign? Okay. Now, he rebukes them for seeking after a sign. He rebukes them for missing the obvious. But he's like, you guys want a sign? Okay, I'll give you one. And then he makes this example of the sign of the prophet Jonah. Now, what is the sign of the prophet Jonah? Well, I think there's a couple ways of looking at this that are all equally true. Again, I think that there is an application of Jesus is, is referencing here of his resurrection. And just the same way that Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, Jesus would be three days and three nights dead before what being resurrected to life. Jonah goes into the deep and he's gone from view. He's dead. And yet three days later, he gets vomited back up and he's alive. Good sign. And so Jesus here, I think that there's an application. He's like, you want a sign? I'll give you one. I'm going to die. And three days later, I'll be resurrected. I think that that's a pretty good one. I think that there's another way of looking at it as well. Again, looking at Jonah. And then since then, how did Jonah end up in the waves, end up being swallowed by the fish? Well, this storm that had arisen on the waters, if you go back to the story of Jonah the prophet, the storm was directly attributed to one thing, Jonah. Jonah was called by God to go minister to Nineveh, the capital of the Assyrians, a brutal, wicked, godless people. And Jonah knows that God is so good that he's liable to save him. He's like, not on my watch. Glad your pastor loves you. I mean, that's not a good pastor. So he gets in a boat, he goes the opposite direction to Tarshish. And it's, it's there that this storm, this tempest arises, and Jonah knows he's having a pity party in the bottom of the boat. Everyone's going to perish. They've thrown all the tackle overboard. They're like, we're going down. Clearly, God is judging us. And Jonah's like, no, he's judging me. And you know what? I'll take the judgment upon myself so that you can be saved. So Jonah goes into the water for one reason. And it was part of the maturation of Jonah learning to love people. But he's looking around at this crew and he's like, your blood will be on my hands. So just throw me overboard. And they're like, no, (laughs) we're all going to die. It's either me or it's all of us. So Jonah goes in. He gets swallowed up. We're told that Jesus, what? He became sin to save us. And so this sign of Jonah is multifaceted. Yes, it speaks to the resurrection, but it also speaks to Jesus' willingness to be thrown overboard to save everyone on deck, that being you and I. So he leaves and he departs, verse 5. Now when his disciples had come to the other side, they had forgotten to take bread. (laughs) Uh, I love this story. Bread. Bread. They forgot to pack their their lunch pails. So Jesus said to them, take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they reasoned among themselves saying, it's because we have no bread. Morons. Jesus, we're told, being aware of it, said to them, oh, you of little faith, why do you reason among yourselves because you have have no, brought no bread? Do you not yet understand or remember the five loaves of the 5,000? How many baskets you had taken up? Nor the seven loaves of the 4,000? How many large baskets you took up? How is it that you do not understand that I did not speak to you concerning bread, but to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees? Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the doctrine of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Please keep in mind, side note, this is the (laughs) A-team. You know, Jesus could have picked anybody. I'm going to come, I'm going to save the world, I'm going to die on the cross, and I'm going to hand it over to a group of men. He could have picked anybody of the twelve. 12 men, he's got the whole world to choose from. These are the guys he ends up with. Hey, guys, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the scribes, uh, the, the Sadducees. It's because we don't have any bread. No, it's got it's nothing to do with bread, guys. Do you not understand? It doesn't matter that you didn't bring bread or not. Have you so quickly forgotten about, you know, the 5,000 situation? Didn't have bread then, took care of it. Or the 4,000 didn't have bread then, took care of it. You guys are not getting it. And then they're like, oh, he's not talking about bread. Duh. I see Jesus like, I'm not talking about bread. The A-team. Hey, if Jesus would pick these guys, you know why he picked these guys? He picked these guys, and we have stories like this, so you can step back and say, man, it clearly wasn't them. (laughs) It was Jesus working in them and then working through them, right? that he took like the most unable guys on the planet to do something extraordinary through so that you would look at him and be like, man, that ingenuity of that Peter guy. He's a genius. Nope. No, it was God doing something amazing through a group of misfits. dead weight. These men a few fries short of a full Happy Meal, you know? Which I find very encouraging because again, if Jesus could take these 12 and change the world, then he, he can use you too to change your world, you know? Sometimes we, we, well, I don't know enough or I don't know the right questions or I don't have all my theology. I don't, I don't have this, I don't have that. We're very quick to tell God why he can't use us as opposed to God saying, no, no, no. Like, I know you're not able. That's why I'm picking you. So that no one could look at what I'm gonna do through you and say that it was you. They have to say, wow, something supernatural has to happen because I know that guy. See what I'm saying? And so we have this group bread leaven so what is jesus talking about what is he and and note he's saying beware of something beware pay attention guard yourself fight against these things avoid it leaven we know leaven as noted in our travels through matthew is sin and we're already given a this is a sinful doctrine So there's something about the Pharisees, some sinful doctrine, some sinful approach that he's saying beware of. Same with the Sadducees. Something to beware of. Don't fall into their trap. Don't listen to their doctrine. And in its most simplistic explanation, if you summarize down the Pharisees and the Sadducees and what it is at its core that they did wrong that Jesus is telling us to beware of. First, the Pharisees, their core problem is that they added to God's word things that, that weren't in God's word. They added they said God said things that God didn't say. Instead of just letting the word be the word and obeying the word as the word is, they heaped onto it all kinds of traditions and and, 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 and greater acts of obedience, laws. And Jesus is like, That's a sinful thing. Legalism. We abide by grace and grace alone. And then on the flip side, you have the Pharisees. It wasn't that they added to God's word. The Pharisees took away from God's word. If there was something as a rationalist that they couldn't understand, they set it aside. And I think God is telling us both sides, there's a sin to this doctrine. You find it in all kinds of examples a- across Christianity today. You have groups of people that are very legalistic that are adding, heaping on to God's word things that, that God's word doesn't say. Placing onto people expectations that God is not placing upon you. You know, I find that, that 90% of, of what condemns a Christian is nothing that God ever said to them, but something that a religious pastor or leader placed on them. Something that it begins with a noble intention, but it's not there. God didn't say it. Beware of that. It's sinful. It leads you astray. You become so righteous, you don't need a savior anymore. But then on the flip side, you have this taking away from God's word, robbing it of its miracle as a rationalist. You know, I I must say, again, this quote is an interesting quote. I hope I get it right. But but there is a component to God. Like, if, if God, if I could make God small enough that I could understand all that there is to know, then he wouldn't be big enough to demand my worship. Like, think about it. If you could make God, where like you could rationalize everything about God, that there was no mystery, there was was nothing that, that left you in wonder, amazement, unexplained, the supernatural, then what kind of a God would he be? In fact, if you could understand everything there is to know about God, then what makes him any different than you? You've shrunk God down to a size where he's no longer big enough to demand worship. I love the fact, I, I'm, a, I'm a very rational person. I'm a, I'm a, a T-crosser, I-dotter. I, I like to have my theology buttoned up. I like to be able to explain things, work on how to explain things. I, I'm a thinker in that regard. But I must tell you, I, I love the fact that there are things where it's like, hey, I have no idea. One day, we'll spend eternity learning about God. You know the biggest question I have about God? It's not, can he make a rock too big that he can't lift? You know? Or how he made everything in seven days, or, or this, or that. The biggest question I have about God, the biggest mystery about God, is why would he love me? Can you answer that question? And yet it's the essence of our entire relationship with him. Like, well, yeah, I can answer it. If you've not met me, I'm awesome. No, you're not. God. And so you had Jesus' says, beware of those who add to God's word things that are, are not there. It's grace, period. You've heard me. I'm a broken record. I'll repeat it so you remember it. The gospel is grace and grace alone. It's grace, period nothing you do, everything he did, no sacrifices. You made one sacrifice he did. It's grace and grace alone. That is the essence, that is the be- the beginning, the continuation, and the end of your relationship with God. You have one because you don't deserve one and you haven't earned it, nor can you. You have it because he's that, go- that good and he gave it to you and you just receive it. Grace and grace alone. But if you ever hear someone say, hey, grace is awesome, comma, and do these things. Well, You're adding to things that If if grace is sufficient, why do I need other things? Or grace, but don't do these things. Well, wait a second. If grace is all I need, then why are you adding or subtracting? Again, beware. And then anybody that comes along and tries to remove things, adding and subtracting. Verse 13. And when Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, Caesarea Philippi is in the north of Israel, a beautiful area. In fact, in the northern part of the country, it is right at the base of, of, of a massive mountain. And at, at the base of this mountain, you have this incredible uh, natural spring system that is the earth early tributaries of what becomes the Jordan River. So so we're way up in the the north part of the country. You have this incredible rock face, Caesarea Philippi. It was dedicated, built out, dedicated to a lot of pagan gods, uh, pagan idols, pools of waters, gorgeous, beautiful. Uh, Jesus goes to Caesarea Philippi. Early tributaries there to the Jordan River, beautiful. But he goes there for a reason. And he asks his disciples, is saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Now, I find it interesting that, that Jesus makes it clear who he is in the question that he asks. Who is he? <laughs> He's the Son of Man. The great I am. God made flesh. But Jesus asks them hey, guys, what's the rumor mill out there? You guys have your ear to the street? What, what is Twitter saying about me? Hashtag Jesus, who is he? And so he asked this question. So they said, some say John the Baptist. Some say Elijah. Others say Jeremiah. Or one of the prophets? And so they answer. They're like, well, uh, there's a lot of mystery as to who you are. There's a lot of rumors. You know, when when, when it's said that you're John the Baptist, we do have an example of, of Herod actually thinking that Jesus was the reincarnation of John the Baptist. Uh, the Jews didn't believe in reincarnation. So within its context, this is probably kind of more of a, like, this is kind of who you are. This is how people... He's like a John the Baptist. It's kind of not that, that he is John the Baptist, but he's like a John the Baptist. He's another John the Baptist. He's a prophet. He's like John. He's, he's calling the nation to repentance. And some say Elijah. He speaks for God. Even against opposition. Others, Jeremiah, one of the other prophets. So this is what, this is what people are saying. This is what's out there. So Jesus said to them, but who do you say that I am? So Jesus has kind of set up, set them up, hasn't he? What's the word on the street? All right. Well, what, do you, what What about you guys? Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, "You are the Christ, the Son of the Living God." And there is a mouthful in what Peter just said. Guys, what's the rumor out there? Well, some think you're this, some think you're that. What about you guys? And Peter, who steps up, I think, probably for the group. Peter was often the, the spokesman. Who do you say that I am? Well, well, we believe that you're the Christ, Christ, Christos, Messiah, the Savior, Now, we're not quite sure even at this point they fully understand the complete ramifications of of what that is in its totality of the Old Testament scriptures. They still think that Jesus being the Messiah um, is coming to establish an actual physical kingdom. Jesus will do that in his second advent, not the first. But they also understand that Jesus would, would usher in peace, that he's the king, that he's the promised one. But beyond that, you're the son of the living God. In essence, you are God. That's who we believe. You're the Messiah, but you're a God. And that is a powerful statement made by Peter. I mean, this is gold star kind of stuff on Peter's report card. I mean, he's doing great. This is awesome. I also should point out, look at Jesus' question. He says, but who do you say that I am? So it's not just, hey, who do you believe that I am? What's What are people saying about me? Well, this is what they're saying. What are you saying about me? So it's not just what you believe about me, but what are you articulating? What are you telling? You know, it's one thing to believe something. It's another thing to believe it and then articulate it. Say it and claim it. Stake a flag on it. So it's not just that Peter's like, yeah, we believe you're the Christ, you're the Messiah, you're the son of the living God. That's what we're out there telling people you are. Amazing. So Jesus, verse 17, he said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. You know, Peter's got to be feeling pretty good about himself, you know? Yes, Peter, right on. In fact, it's kind of shocking. Flesh and blood couldn't have revealed this to you, You have received a revelation from my Father. You are right on. You're correct. My Father in heaven has revealed this to you, and you believe it, and you're proclaiming it. Verse 18, I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that he was Jesus the Christ. Now, we encounter here probably one of the most complex and conflicted passages in the New Testament. In fact, it's this one passage that we have probably the most significant divergence of Christians on the planet. Jesus saying to Peter, flesh and blood has not revealed this. You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Now, what is Jesus saying here? Now, there are the Roman Catholics that hold to the position that this is the ordination of, Of Peter being the first pope. That it's upon Peter. That Jesus would build the church. And then somehow the Roman Catholics say that aside from just Peter. That there is then a succession of what's called papal authority. Descending down from this promise to Peter. But the promise to Peter then gets handed off to a succession of other people filling Peter's role, a.k.a. Pope's. The problem with that, well, it's, it's it, there's several problems with that. One, I have no problems pointing out the significance of Peter. Peter, who do you say that I am? You're Jesus, you're the Messiah, you're the son of the living God. Hey, you're Peter. On this rock, I will build my church. And I think that there is, a, a, Peter has a significant role. I think Protestants sometimes go too far on that. Peter's a weird guy. But Peter's a significant dude. Every single list of apostles in your Bible begin, you want to take a guess? They're listing. They all begin with what? Peter. He's the first. In likelihood, he was probably the oldest. So every list begins with a a hierarchy. Peter is always listed first. And it is true when you're talking about building the church that Peter played a very unique, special role, didn't he? On Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, and then Acts 3, when you have this incredible outpouring of the Holy Spirit of God. And people are like, man, these people are drunk. They're speaking in tongues. They're sharing the gospel in native languages. People, These are Galileans. What's going on here? This is confusing. A crowd gathers, and what is Peter? Peter steps up. Now, keep in mind... Fifty days before this, Peter denies Jesus three times, cussing out a little girl around a fire in the process of it. The rooster crows. He thinks he's done for. Jesus ends up restoring him. That was just like 50 days ago. And here you got this crowd in Jerusalem wanting to know what's happening, and who's the one that steps up and preaches the gospel with boldness, tenacity, and fire? It's Peter. Go back and read that first sermon. I mean, Peter, he mixes no words. I mean, he goes right for the jugular. God sent us the Savior, and you killed him. (laughs) And 3,000 people get saved. I mean, God uses Peter to institute the church. Day one, 3,000 souls, and it's all Jewish. Now, God's plan is for later on what? the gospel to go beyond to the Jews and to the Gentiles. And who is the instrument that God uses for that? Again, it's Peter. Peter was instrumental in taking the gospel to the Jews, and then Peter becomes instrumental in Acts chapter 10 of taking the gospel to the Gentiles. Now, it is true that the apostle Paul will play a significant role in the spread of the gospel across the world. But don't discount Peter's significant role. I will build my church So there is this component where I think Protestants maybe go too far, but the problem with, with, okay, Peter would play a role, but there is zero scriptural evidence that Peter's role gets passed on in any type of hierarchy. I have no problem saying Peter was the first pope. My problem is that there's another pope after Peter because there's nowhere in the scriptures that we're given any type of indication of papal authority. Now, I will also say, that I don't think Jesus was talking about Peter. Again, look at the text. He says, I say to you, verse 18, that you are Peter, Petros. It's a masculine word. It means pebble, rock, but pebble. Now they're in Caesarea Philippi, and there's this gigantic rockscape. In fact, the pagan idolatry would get to the gates of hell. The gates of hell were right there. You are Peter, masculine tense, Peter, And then he says, on this rock, petra, feminine, different word, I will build my church. You're Peter, you're a rock. But on this rock, I will build my church. It's two different words. Not only is it two different words, but because you have a masculine followed by the feminine in the way that Greek language works, because of the distinction of the the gender tenses, they can't be the same. So when Jesus says, you're Peter, and on this rock, he can't be referring to Peter being the rock. It doesn't work like that in the Greek language. So what is the rock? Now, there's another school of thought that will say, well, Jesus is the rock, right? Jesus is the rock. And there's a consistency within that idea throughout the scriptures. In fact, Peter, 1 Peter, Peter will talk about being living stones, right? Right? And then he'll turn and he say, well, we're living stones set upon the cornerstone, referring to Jesus. Paul will build on the idea that, that Jesus is the foundation of the church. So could it be that Peter, flesh and blood hadn't revealed this, you're Peter, you're a stone. But on this rock, I will build my church. Could Jesus be referring to himself as the rock? Well, there's some evidence for that. I don't think so. Could be, but I don't think so. I will build my church. What rock? Well, again, within the context of the the flow here, what has Peter been commended for? Like, what's the essence, the context, the flow of the story? Hey, what's the word out there about me? Well, this is what it is. Who do you say that I am? Peter steps up. He's the spokesman. Who do we think you are? Well, we think you're the Messiah. And beyond being the Messiah, you're God. Peter makes a profession, a profession of faith, a profession that is radical and important and significant and is essential for salvation. If you don't accept Jesus as your king and your savior and as God, then you don't accept Jesus. What is the church founded upon? What is it built upon? It is the confession of Peter that Jesus is the Messiah and he is God. And it is on that confession that Jesus has built his church. Now, does Peter play a role? Sure. Is Jesus the chief cornerstone? No doubt. But I think in its context, the best understanding of what's happening here is that the rock that Jesus will build his church upon is a simple profession of faith that breeds salvation and therefore regeneration, sanctification. It is a confession, an acceptance of of an identity of Jesus that changes you. He's saying it's on that that I build my church because you're not part of the church without that. I will also point out that who builds the church? Is it Peter who builds the church? Regardless of the definition of rock here, is it Peter that's building the church? Is it the apostles who are building the church? No, who builds the church? Jesus. He says it's on this rock, whether that's Peter, Jesus himself, or this confession. Either way, who does the building? It's Jesus. We're told in Acts when we see the exponential growth of the church, we're told, I think it's at the end of chapter 2, book of Acts, that we're told the Lord added to the church daily. The, The Lord added it wasn't. It wasn't a marketing campaign of the church. It wasn't the Kara's, uh, It wasn't Peter's charisma. It wasn't. It wasn't the celebrity of a pastor that builds the church. You know, I I just should encourage you. Um, whatever your next church happens to be after this one, because I'm really good at running people off. So I'm just going to assume you'll you'll land somewhere else later. But when that happens, let me just give you a tip on how to choose the next church. Find out how the church is growing. Ask what they point it to. Well, we do this slick marketing campaign where we all the new neighborhoods, we've got a strategy in place. and every new neighborhood that gets built, we buy these, these mass mailing things and we get all the addresses and we send this big advert. Man, when we started doing that, boom, our attendance started taking off. It was amazing. In fact, we've got this billboard. We put it right on 316. We pay a lot of money. We cut all the missionaries out. We needed the billboard. But man, when we put that billboard up on 316, woo dog, place got packed. Awesome. And you know what? We had this old guy that was a pastor. He was kind of a dud. So we ran him out. We got a young guy. He doesn't know much, but he's cool. And he really relates to people. And man, as soon as we hired that guy, we took off. Man, when we built that new building, we upgraded the technology. Man, we really turned the corner. Well, again, this is for your next church. If that's how the church is being built, that's fine. But just know it's not Jesus doing it. You know, Jesus doesn't need our help to build the church. In fact, I would say that the church has had more problems when we don't allow Jesus to do the building. That is, when we take the control, when we apply our ingenuity, when we do our marketing, when when we're like, we'll build it, that Jesus is like, okay, go for it. And it tends to be a disaster in the process. I don't know about you. Again, I could offend you. Apply it to the next church. But when you go, find out how the church is being built. And if the answer is, hey, I got no idea. Jesus adds, he subtracts. Like my job, I'll, I'll just say this: my job as the pastor of Calvary three sixteen. I am way more interested in ministering to the people here than reaching the people out there. Sometimes ministries get so so focused on reaching the people that aren't at church instead of ministering to the people that are. That makes sense, because we want to build our own kingdom. Because we get ego and we get we, we're proud of it. And look what I built. Anything I built is on shifting sand and it will be destroyed. But we build it on the rock. We let Jesus add to the church. We get out of the way. I, I, I was invited to lunch a couple years ago by a, a mega church pastor in our area. Sounds great. Let's do it. <clears throat> Meet up at Top Dog for lunch like 30 minutes into the conversation I finally just like hey man I just I don't mean to to, to be offensive here but like why in the world did you want to have lunch with me I mean you got this huge church and I'm in an industrial park that no one can find around the corner from the dump <laughs> like wh- why are we why are we grabbing lunch this is what he said He said, there's only been two non-denominational churches that have made it in Barrow County, and you're one of the two. And I was just purely curious how you've done it. (laughs) I started laughing. I said, I had no idea. (laughs) I said, if you find out, can you let me know? All I can say is that we want Jesus to do something. In his way, on his timing... Because when Jesus does something, notice, the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. The gates. The gates of his city is where the strongmen would sit. It's where the power brokers would be, the elders of the town. It's where they would scheme and plan. So when Jesus uses this analogy, the gates of hell, he's like the powers, the evils, the strategies of hell will never prevail against my church, the church that I am building. That's why I want to be a part of what Jesus builds. Because Jesus has promised the gates of hell won't prevail against it. So I want my family and that fortress. I want my kids and that church. Because there is evil in this world. There's evil around us. There is an enemy conniving. He's, he's, He's like a lion seeking whom he may devour. The prince of that city of hell. And so I want my family in a place where the gates of hell can't prevail. A church that Jesus is building. He says, I will give to you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Wherever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Jesus will repeat this. I believe it's John 20. Don't hold me on that. Um, he repeats this not just to Peter, but to all of the disciples. And, and there's a, there's an application, yes, probably for just the apostles. Again, their unique role in the writing of scripture Binding and loosing was a rabbinical thing. A a rabbi could bind and loose and their application of certain law. So someone would come with a certain law, and they were like, I don't know how to apply this in my situation. And it would then be the rabbi that's like, well, you're bound by this. So I'm going to bind you to this. This is how you should operate. Or he could say, I'm going to loose you from it. It's not fully applicable. The binding and loosing. I think probably a greater way of understanding this passage, the binding and loosing, again, with its context of the church, Jesus building it, the rock, and this confession. The ultimate destiny of of, of what's bound or loose from heaven is here on this earth by the confession of each individual person. I, I think that this is probably best understood within its application of the confession itself If you're on earth and you make this confession of Christ, you're bound. If you don't, you're loosed. And then as a result, I think the church has the authority to also say, you're bound and you're loosed. Not in the sense that the Catholics would say, again, papal authority, this gets twisted where uh, I can produce an anathema on someone. You're going to hell. I pronounced it because, hey, I'm, I'm part of the rock. But we do have the, you know, I don't think you're a believer, man. You should get right with Jesus, the binding, the loosing. We close with the interesting thought here at the end that Jesus commanded his disciples that they should tell no one, again, that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah, his title here. And why would Jesus tell them this? Well, we're beginning to make this transition where Jesus goes from You know, he has a period of obscurity, year one, year two, a period of popularity. He is way into this period of opposition where there are forces, the the Pharisees, scribes, Sadducees, the high priests, that they are actively at this point planning on how they can destroy Jesus. And Jesus will be coming from this area. He'll be making his way to Jerusalem for Passover, knowing what would happen. That was his destiny. That's where he was marching towards. And it seems as though that within this context, Jesus is like, you'll have plenty of time to tell other people, but right now I don't need you being my PR. You know. Let's keep it on the DL. All will get revealed. You'll have your moment. <laughs> but for right now, I have a plan, I have a role, I have a purpose. Well, we get to some, some additional great passages of scripture moving forward, transfiguration, whatnot. We'll get to that next Sunday. Close with, again, the simple exhortation. Don't miss the obvious. Whatever's right in front of you. And you know, I, I say, I, I, when I say don't miss the obvious, I think you, in each of your own applications, probably know exactly what I'm talking about. This is where I trust the Holy Spirit that for each of you individually, it's like, what is that obvious thing that God's been trying to teach you, trying to show you? And it's obvious, and you've been doing everything you can to just ignore it. But it's right in your face. You're trying to look this way, you're trying to look that way. You're trying to ignore the obvious. What is it? What is it maybe that God's trying to reveal about you, or or your marriage, or a parenting style, or a job? What is it? Or is it Jesus himself? What is the obvious? (laughs) The disciples missed the obvious, And then Jesus leads them to a great declaration. The only thing that matters in this life, the only thing that matters, who do you say that Jesus is? Do you know you will not get to heaven based upon the opinions of other people about Jesus? You will not get to heaven based upon the opinions of your parents or your wife or your siblings, That question, who do you say that I am? Jesus is asking every one of us. And what is the answer? For me, you're the Christ, you're the Son of the living God. And that's why you're worthy of my worship and my loyalty and my adoration. I bend the knee, I surrender, I accept it. Is Jesus a friend? You know, if Jesus is just a friend, he's not a savior. If he's just a good teacher, is, he is, is, is he's not a savior. If he's a great moral, moral authority, he's not a savior. The world has a lot of things to say about Jesus. But that doesn't matter who do you say that Jesus is. And then what you say about it. Do you believe that? Does that work out an effectual change in you? if you say that Jesus is the Christ, you're saying that he's your king, he is your savior. And if you say he's God, you're saying he's all power. I mean, you're making a declaration of Jesus that then will demand some type of a change in you and through you. No one can say this about Jesus. You know, they say an oxymoron, you know, like Microsoft works, you know, two words that conflict. Um, you know, no one can no one can say no, Lord, because you can't say no to Lord. If He's truly your King, if He's truly, if He holds that place as God in your life, Jesus says, "Who who do you say that I am?" Because your position and conclusions about Jesus have not just ramifications right now, but will have them for eternity. So Father, Lord, we just let that thought settle.